0: Father, we ask you to now help us. Would you give us clear spiritual eyes to see the Lord Jesus in his stooped, loving humility, serving sinners like us. Move our hearts so that we can be those who follow his example and who serve each other because of the love that we share in Christ Jesus. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. The ghosts of Gallipoli will always rise to condemn him. Those words were spoken over 100 years ago about a young politician named Winston Churchill. At this point, Churchill was a rising star in British Parliament. He had risen to a point where he was in charge of the whole Royal Navy. It was during World War I, and Churchill was convinced that he could bring a swift end to the war if they struck the Ottoman Empire with all they had— with a push into a place called Gallipoli. There were many that disagreed that this was a wise course of action, but Churchill was sure and he pushed them through. Only one problem, he was wrong. The battle was a disaster. They did not take Gallipoli and the allied British forces lost 250,000 soldiers as casualties. Churchill's career appeared to be over His political enemies pounced on the opportunity, they drove him out of parliament, and he disappeared into obscurity, becoming an enlisted soldier serving in the trenches. You might say that he learned humility the hard way. We know this, though, that humility, should be a virtue that we would look for in those who would lead us. It seems to be in short supply in many circles of our world today. And so it's so refreshing when we look at Jesus, in the passage in front of us, the one with the most right toward prestige and honor of anyone that's ever existed, is the very Son of God from heaven. And we see his example of humble, loving service. It's a beloved section of Scripture for this very reason. And as we explore it, we'll see it's actually the foundation for why we Christians Ought to engage in loving, humble service toward each other. We'll explore it in three sections, three th- things that we see about Jesus as he does this act that we know so well of washing his disciples' feet. First, in 1 through 5, we'll see that this washing of their feet is actually a, a presentation of love. It's a presentation of love. Second, in 6 through 11, we'll see that it's a picture of cleansing that it's a picture of cleansing, and then finally in 12 through 17, we'll see the main point of this whole thing, that Jesus is showing us a pattern for service, how Christians are to serve each other. And all this, we'll see that Jesus in his loving, humble service is the reason why we, in turn, are loving, humble servants to each other. Let's begin in 1 through 5, looking at this presentation of love. Verse 1 tells us, uh, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We've reached a significant point in John's gospel. The first 11 chapters roughly dealt with his two, two and a half year long ministry on uh, on this earth. From here forward, 13 onward, we are going to see the last 24 hours of his life. In fact, chapter 13 through 17 will be focused on just one day. We are at Thursday evening, and on Friday, he will be crucified. It's a, a little bit like a TV show I used to like. I, I, I admit that uh, this is not high art or anything, but uh, I used to watch a TV show called 24 with Keeper Sutherland, uh, very high body count for some reason in that show. Um, but the, the interesting thing about the show is the, that it's done in real time. So there's 24 episodes in a season. Each episode's an hour long. And there's literally a clock that would show up every time they went to commercial. It told you exactly how long had progressed in the story. Well, we're at a point in John's gospel where time is changing. Jesus has been saying over and over again that the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And now John says in John 13, 1, he knew that his hour had come. Now it's as if time itself will start to slow down. As if the narrative will start compressing into tighter and tighter windows here. As Jesus and his last few hours on this world show us what is most important. So the question is, what would Jesus say is the most important thing for him to do with his last day in this world? Well, John tells us at the answer, end of verse one there, it's for him to show his disciples love. Look at the way he says, it. he says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's kind of a summary statement that encapsules the, the next four chapters at least. Jesus is going to be engaging in this preparation for his disciples to make sure that they are ready for what's about to come in the cross and what they're going to be doing on his behalf as his disciples after his resurrection. And yet, it's not just a summary statement, because this is the very first thing Jesus is doing in this act of washing feet. He is loving his disciples. And we're going to skip verses 2 and 3. If you come back next week, we're going to focus a lot on the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Uh, But look with me at the end of 3. Jesus, uh, he knows that his time is about up. He's going back to God. And then verse 4, so he rises from supper. And then we get to this actual action of foot washing in verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments. That's a, a bit like stripping down to his undershirt and his boxers. He takes a towel. He ties it around his waist. Then he gets down on his knees with a basin and some water, and he starts washing feet. Now, this was a pre-Passover meal, and it was being uh, served in a typical Middle Eastern way. At that point, they would have uh, been on a table on the floor, and they would have all been leaning in with one elbow and grabbing food with the other. And that means their feet are all radiating out uh, away from the table in kind of a circle. So Jesus got up, he he excused himself, he got ready, then he goes around this circle washing the disciples' feet along the way. Now, on its face, washing feet is already kind of nasty business. I don't think any of us, very few of us anyway, would uh, say that that is an enjoyable experience to be uh, experiencing the aromas of people's feet. Um, But there was another component to this, a couple of weeks ago we talked about this, how there was a very definite pecking order socially back in culture in that day that meant that someone should not wash feet unless they were the lowest of the low in society. Um, I was a member of a a varsity basketball team as a freshman, and there was no doubt there was a pecking order on that team. Um, The the freshman, or the rook, um, always was the last one to get on the bus, The the rook was always the last one to sit down to eat if we had a meal together. Uh, The the rook always ended up being the one to run the extra sprints if it ever happened. Um, The star player, on the other hand, the star player never had to do any of those things. It it was beneath him, but the rookie, that was for him to do. There there was an even wider gap back then between those with prestige and honor and authority and, and the servants. Washing feet was considered the lowest of the lowest servant's work. Uh, There's one rabbi that was uh, known to have taken his mother to court. His mother had insisted that she was going to try and wash his feet. And this rabbi named Rabbi Ishmael refused so strenuously that they ended up in court to resolve the dispute. One of the things he said was that it is only fitting for a Gentile servant to wash feet. So not even a Jewish servant should be doing this. Well, if you consider Jesus and his disciples, uh, even if there were no servants present, it would have been for the lowest disciple on the pecking order to wash feet. It, It certainly would not have been for the teacher, the one they called Lord, to be the one to walk around washing feet. So Jesus is here turning upside down the hierarchy of his day. He is showing an incredible amount of humility. And in so doing, he is demonstrating his love. Now, this isn't out of character for Jesus. Earlier in the service, we read Philippians 2, 5 through uh, 11, I just want to focus in on a couple of those verses. Look at Philippians 2 verse 5. uh, The Apostle Paul here writing said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then talking about the incarnation, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, that's not just talking about washing feet. That's talking about the whole of the incarnation at this point. But this is the character of the one washing feet, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So why is Jesus washing feet? Because that's the sort of Lord he is. He's not the sort of Lord that lords it over others that stands far above and points out how much higher he is than them. No, he stoops down. He gets dirty to express his care for his disciples. Now, you have to understand the the depth of his drop to understand the depth of his love. Until you see Jesus high and lifted up as the one stooping in front of those dirty feet, you won't understand the love that Jesus has for his disciples. And you know, living today, 2,000 years later, we may, may have never had our feet physically washed by Jesus, and yet he is not done serving his people. I mean, after he was dead and in the tomb, he was resurrected, and then he went up to heaven, and now he is serving as our high priest. That is, he's standing in the very throne room of God, hearing our prayers, interceding on our behalf. And yes, friends, that means that there are going to be times in a Christian's life where you know in an unmistakable way that Jesus is lovingly, even humbly serving you on this earth. You know, there's lots of ways, if we have eyes to see, where we can recognize Jesus' fingerprints on our dirty feet. Uh, this week, I gave myself an exercise trying to discern this in my own heart. What ways did I see? Jesus loving, even humbly serving me this week. I I came up with three things that I noticed. I I noticed that he allowed me to hear a testimony of somebody that was just greatly encouraging to me, to to hear how someone was at one point not a believer, and then they were, and it was just something I praise God for. Uh, I noticed that he gave me a timely encouragement from somebody, someone who didn't even know I needed it, but Just out of the blue, they came and told me something that was deeply encouraging to me, and Jesus knew I needed it, and he served me in bringing that uh, person uh, in front of me. Uh, The third thing I noticed was there was someone I had been praying for, and I saw that prayer answered. And you know, I'm, I'm glad that God did that, but I'm even more glad that I realized that Jesus is actually loving me and allowing me to pray for this person and to see how he answered the prayer in their life. Now, if you're not in the habit of doing this sort of kind of like spiritual audit in your own life, it's a good practice to get into. Maybe just ask yourself your question this week. How has Jesus loved me over the last week or the last month? See if you can come up with one or two ways that you notice. And even as you start thinking that way, I guarantee you, friend, you're going to find more and more ways that you see the fingerprints of Jesus on your dirty feet. Well, Jesus here does this amazing act of getting down. It's countercultural, it's upside down. He, he serves them by washing their feet. And yet, it's not just about washing feet. Like so many other things that Jesus does, there's a greater, even eternal reality behind it. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 11. It's not just a presentation of love, it's also a picture of cleansing. You can see this coming out as he interacts with Peter in verse 6. So he, that's Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's a bit like saying, "Uh, Jesus, do you understand what you're doing? This is not the way this is supposed to work. Wake up, Jesus. Verse 7, Jesus responded. He answered, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. So Just just pipe down, Peter. You'll get it later. Peter, always the one to speak up. Everyone else, their jaw's on the ground. They can't say a word. Peter's got something to say. Just pipe down, Peter. Just let me do this. Verse 8, Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. It's almost as if you can hear his foot stomp on the floor and him dig in his heels. Not going to do it, Jesus. This is not the way it's supposed to go. And then... This is where it comes out that Jesus is not just talking about physically washing smelly feet. Look what he says here. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share of me. If I do not wash you, you have no share of me. See, Jesus is not talking about a ritual that he is instituting, that we are to perpetuate from this time forward. No, he's giving a picture of the greatest way he serves anyone, the way he serves all those who rightly call him their Savior and Lord, of the cleansing from sin that only Jesus can provide. See, Jesus is drawing a picture here, and Peter is in the midst of messing up that picture. Jesus is trying to do a beautiful act that once they have eyes to see, they will understand it is about how Jesus cleanses their souls from sin. And Peter here is being obstinate and trying to play defense against what Jesus is trying to do. Now, friend, do you understand that your greatest need that Jesus has ever served you in is forgiving your sins. I mean, that's the most fundamental thing there is to being a Christian or a follower of Christ as you are someone that recognizes that you are a sinner before a holy God and that you need someone to cleanse your guilt before God. That someone is Jesus. I mean, the Bible speaks about our greatest need, not that we lack enough education or we just need a, a moral teacher that'll show us how to achieve our potential. Now our problem is that our sins before a holy God have created a blood guilt, that a holy God will respond with wrath toward rebels that oppose his rule in this world, and that left to our own, all of us would be lost. And yet in his mercy, God sent his son Jesus to pay our blood guilt, to die as a sacrifice, When Jesus was strung up by the Romans, it wasn't an accident or some political miscalculation. It was the very intention of God to cleanse the souls of sinners that would turn to Jesus in faith. Jesus here tells Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Because whether Peter realizes it or not, being washed by Jesus is the thing that he needs most of all. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I don't know if you've even ever thought this sort of thought about yourself. Is it a problem? Is it a problem that there is some manner of guilt in your heart? Is it a problem that you have made mistakes in this world? Does God just expect you to live the best you can with the information you have and the place you have? Or or does God expect something more? According to the Bible, all of us stand before God guilty and we need someone to cleanse our hearts or the final day of judgment will be a sad day indeed. But the good news, friend, is that when Jesus says he will cleanse your hearts, he truly will do it. He will give you unlimited forgiveness before God. Not because you've earned it or there's anything you could do to make yourself lovable to this God, but because he's just that sort of God. He loved you so much that he would give up his life to cleanse your heart of your sin. A little while ago, we sang that song, Rock of Ages, and there's this one stanza in it which captures this idea so well that there's nothing we do to bring this cleansing about. It's all something that Jesus does. It says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. See, if you're here this morning and you know that there's something not right between you and God, the good news, friend, is Jesus. Jesus can turn that fearful expectation that you have in your heart, he can turn it instead into a joyful expectation. If you would just trust Jesus, he will wipe all your sins away, now and forever, and you can have no more fear about the day of judgment. Instead, you can look forward to a homecoming of your loving Heavenly Father. Jesus here shows us this example of cleansing, that once for all cleansing that all must receive if they are to become Christians. But he has another way he's going to use this act of washing to show us something of a spiritual truth. That's in verses 9 through 11. He's going to shift the metaphor This time, he's not talking about our justification or our final forgiveness. Now he's going to talk about our relational forgiveness. Look with me in verse 9. Now, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Uh, Okay, Jesus, if this has to be done, let's do this right. Just do the whole thing. Just wash me all up and down. uh, Jesus, in verse 10, is like, you're still not getting it, Peter. Uh, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed, he does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus here gives a, it's, frankly, it's a pretty difficult statement. Both uh, people wrestle over how to translate it and how to, uh, to interpret it. Um, I think the best way to understand it is he has shifted the metaphor. He's no longer talking about how someone is forgiven once for all for their sins. Now he's talking about that reality that we continue to be sinners. There's remaining sins still in the life of a believer. And when we sin, we strain our relationship with our heavenly father. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit It's possible to fall into patterns of sin, even grievous sin as a Christian. And when we do that, we can feel a sort of distance growing between us and God. Jesus here uses the analogy of someone who has taken a bath and then gotten his feet dirty to illustrate this idea. Now, the way they took baths back in the day was different than today. Um, Back then, you would get, if you were lucky, one full bath a month something like that. I mean, that would be uh, pretty extravagant to be doing once a month. Um, And that meant that even right after you had just come out of the shower, if you went out walking to the market and your feet and your legs got dusty, you would not come back to your house and take another bath. That's just not how it was done. So instead, you would simply wash from the the ankles down, just that your feet needed a little touch up. Uh, Jesus is here describing not how someone is made right with God once and for all. This is not talking about the forgiven, innocent, once for all. This is not that moment. No, he's talking about that relationship with God where we come back to our heavenly father, when we repent of having lived in a way unworthy of the calling of, he's put on our lives, and when we find that Relationship restored, we find that joy of knowing our heavenly Father is close to us and He loves us. It's something that Christians experience again and again. This cycle of sinning, repenting, and being restored to their heavenly Father. The, the, this same writer, John, speaks of this very dynamic in another book he wrote, uh, a letter called First John, First John chapter one and verse nine. He says. If we confess our sins, this is talking to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The the expectation there is we are actively confessing our sins to God and that there is a a new fresh type of relational forgiveness we experience. Then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Martin Luther understood this truth. His his first of the 95 theses was that the whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. That when Jesus said, repent, he meant for that to be an action that Christians do again and again and again. And which of us that have walked for any period of time as believers in the Lord Jesus have had any experience but this? We all fall back into sinful patterns We all fall short of the calling that Jesus has in front of us. And what do we do in that moment? Do we we just pretend like that didn't happen? Do we hide from God and just go about our day trying to forget about it? Well, Jesus is saying here, when that happens, there is a, a cleansing of your feet that he is desirous to do. He will humbly restore you back to your heavenly father. He'll make you right and restore the joy of your salvation. That means friends, you should be quick to admit as a Christian that I have sinned. You should be quick to ask God to once again forgive you to, for Jesus to cleanse your feet again so that you can once again be, be right with your heavenly father in that relational way. And I know this means that you are going in and out of your salvation or that you can somehow lose what Christ accomplished for you on the cross and yet it's a real thing that believers experience. So maybe you're here this morning and your feet have gotten pretty grimy. Maybe the world and the way the world walks has gotten stuck a little, a little uh, too much to your feet. Friend, if that's you, Jesus is inviting you to come have your feet washed by him. He would humbly serve you like this again. He would accept your heartfelt repentance. He would apply that which is already yours as a believer perfect relationship with God and and give you that intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit again. Friends, don't leave today if you know this is you. Would you allow Jesus to serve you this way, to cleanse you even of your relationship with God so that you can have the joy that a Christian should have? These two metaphors Jesus shows us shows us that this act of foot washing was a way of of showing us about what's to come on the cross. How this Savior would serve us by providing the forgiveness for our sins. And yet, the main point of all of this actually is in verses 12 through 17. All of this is kind of window dressing, getting to the thing that Jesus has been driving to all along. This is one long, <clears throat> one long um, object lesson Jesus, the teacher, is using to show his disciples why it is they should serve each other. That's what verses 12 through 17 show us. Thirdly, a pattern for service, a pattern for service. In verse 12, we're told that Jesus goes back to the table when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, I grew up in a church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, that understood Jesus' command here to wash each other's feet in a very kind of wooden, literal way we believed that there were three ordinances. There was baptism, there was communion, and then for germaphobes everywhere, the most uh, anxiety-giving of all, there was foot washing. Um, and that meant that once a month, we got out enough basins that everyone could take turns. That, yes, that means you used the same water that someone else stuck their feet in a second ago, and uh, you washed each other's feet. And Now, there was something, I have to admit, a little beautiful about it. It was an act of loving service to each other, and yet, that is not what Jesus is getting at here. He is not trying to tell them, this is what Christians are supposed to do for each other. Literally wash each other's feet, immerse them in water. That's not what he's saying. Uh, I mean, There's several points along the way that would imply that. His interaction with Peter, for one. Um, the fact that Judas is included in this. I mean, that, that's a, a tip that this is not some ritual that Jesus is talking about. Instead, it's much better to understand this as Jesus is saying that his people are to be marked with the same loving, humble service toward each other that he has shown to them. To borrow a phrase from Pastor Kent Hughes, Jesus wants his disciples to be people of the towel. He wants them to be people known to get down and dirty, to be able to serve each other as Jesus had served them. Well, what is is this actual pattern? Let me give you three things that we should notice, three ways that Jesus gives us a pattern to follow, and then we'll apply it. Uh, The first thing we notice is that serving as a person of the towel means serving, even if it means getting low, even if it means getting low. Uh, Jesus uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. That is to say, if I, your Lord, am willing to do this, and I have this much prestige and authority, then you Who do not have the same level of prestige and authority should have no problem doing the same. In other words, if if you want to understand your motivation for serving, one of the reasons is to look at the drop Jesus allowed himself to have and realize your drop won't be as big. None of us are the eternal Son of God, none of us are sinless, none of us have gone through this world without needing incredible amounts of service into our own lives. So why would any of us, especially those of us who have been, had our sins forgiven by Jesus, why would any of us think we are above humbly serving someone in a way that is remarkable and profound? His drop is greater than our drop, and that means we can keep on getting low until we get low enough to actually be able to help someone. Second thing is we're, We're to make sure that we serve without it being deserved. We're we're to serve without requiring merit. Now, remember, just back in uh, verse 10 and 11, Jesus knew that not every one of them was clean. He he knew that Judas was among the disciples. But, But think about the other disciples. He washed Peter's feet Not only above Peter's protestations, but knowing what Peter was going to do when he betrayed Jesus. He washed the rest of his disciples' feet, knowing full well that they would all, to a man, abandon him. Even the writer of this gospel, he abandons Jesus. None of them remain with him by his side to die with him. And yet Jesus does not use their faithfulness their virtue, their merit. None of that is the reason why Jesus does this. And that means when we turn around and serve each other, we should not be keeping score to only serve those that have earned something from us. We don't just serve people that invite us over for dinner parties. We don't just serve people that we enjoy talking to on Sunday morning. We don't just serve people because they fit into our socioeconomic background or a particular demographic we're from. We serve because our Savior served us. None of us deserved what Jesus did for us, and so none of us can require anyone else to deserve the service that we give as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The third thing we're supposed to learn from this pattern is that we are supposed to serve with a focus on toward fellow Christians, that this is this pattern is intended for us to live out with fellow Christians. Now, it's certainly true that we should love everyone. We're supposed to do good to everyone, but we're also supposed to do good especially to the household of God. You know, we did an event uh, last, last weekend, a community cookout that was designed to show hospitality toward our community, That's good. It's right for Christians to engage in all sorts of charitable acts, to to do good works to our neighbors. And yet we have a unique responsibility to do that toward fellow believers. Now, consider the people that Jesus washed the feet of. He had lots of public ministry in front of crowds. Jesus could have done a mass foot washing if he had wanted said he waited until this period, Thursday night, when they are in an upper room, to wash the closest of the close, his 12 disciples. That shows us his priority of service that we are intended to follow, that the body of Christ is intended to care for itself. Now, as Christians, there, there are a whole bevy of applications that hang off of this. Allow me to give you a few along the way here. The first is that you will need to get close enough to know where the dirt is if you are ever going to wash someone's feet. If you're ever going to serve the way Jesus serves, that means you are going to have to actually know them well enough to know where they need to be served. Now, it is possible to do a manner of service from a distance, We are going to take a benevolence offering later in the the service, and that's uh, uh, designed for just that sort of thing. uh, There are some situations where the whole church can't know about them, and there are some needs that it's good to have funds set aside as a a church that we can meet each other's needs along the way. But by and large, most of us have no clue how those benevolence funds are being used to meet needs and to serve people. If all you're doing is giving to the benevolence fund... That's good, and I'm glad you're doing that. And yet there's another layer of service that closer to how Jesus is describing here, you might say getting life on life. Uh, One of the things we hope happens in our small groups is that as you get to know each other and as you get to praying with each other and as you get to notice things happening in people's lives, that you would actually be moved to meet needs, to, to serve people in this pattern of Jesus to get your hands dirty by bringing someone a meal when, they are, when they're going through a difficult health situation, to, to provide a, uh, an anonymous envelope of money when you know there's financial stress, to just showing up and hanging out because you know they're lonely. You can do those things when you know the people that God has put you in the community of the church. And small groups is one of the ways that we as a church are trying to make that happen. Now, that's not the only way that happens. And uh, I know s- some seasons of life uh, small groups aren't possible. And let me just encourage you toward those sorts of organic relationships that just naturally happen as you worship together with people. It's so encouraging when I hear someone say, I got invited over to lunch after church and I'm gonna go meet this new family that I've never met before. Uh, I I love it when I hear of a single person that is reaching out to someone with kids and vice versa. Uh, I, I love it when I see someone that's homebound, having someone come visit them just because they're a part of the body of Christ. All those sorts of relationships, they don't make sense according to the world's hierarchy. And yet if we're following the pattern of our Lord Jesus, they make perfect sense. You know, there's some structured ways where we try to facilitate this sort of thing. We do meal trains when someone has a baby or someone has some sort of health concern where you can sign up to drop off food. That, that's a great encouragement using your ability to provide and you know, maybe you have some culinary expertise you can use to encourage people. Uh, We we also have a prayer wall. Um, You can go on that prayer wall. You can post prayer requests so other people in the body of Christ can hear about it. Uh, One side of this is being willing to let other people serve you. And by putting a prayer request on the prayer wall, you're allowing the body of Christ to serve you in that way. Certainly, you can come to our prayer meeting. We do once a month, the plug for this evening at 5 o'clock. We have a prayer meeting. We'll pray for different parts of our congregation as a part of that meeting. There's lots of different ways we do this in structured sort of ways. Let me just say that this week as I've been wrestling with this text, I'm firmly convinced that we need to be a sort of people that does this in a spontaneous sort of way. I was struck by how many testimonies I'd heard that have some component of it that someone heard about a need. They just felt some sort of leading to meet that need. They acted on it. Maybe they didn't even know the extent of it, but it turned out God had was doing something through that action. Even as little as they understood, something profound in this other person's life. And I just thought, you know, it's true that sometimes when you just act on kind of spontaneous leadings like that, that sometimes you fall down and you mess up. Uh, Maybe make someone feel a little awkward or maybe you misunderstand a situation and you get a little dirty in the process. And yet it's a whole lot better to fall down and get dirty trying to help than to stay clean and stand far off and do nothing. My hope would be we as a church, when we feel that sort of prompting by the Holy Spirit to to get involved in someone's life and do something to help serve them, that we would feel the freedom to act on it. I pray most of all, though, that we would be a church that's known as a group of people of the towel, people that understand what Jesus did for us, the way he served us, and that are marked forever by that service, so much so that we serve each other, that the world would know us by the love that we have for each other. I opened up this sermon by talking about Winston Churchill and how he was humbled. That humbling stayed with him. It allowed him to become a great leader, the, the man that the British people needed during the dark time of World War II. I think that the Apostle John similarly was marked forever in a moment by humility. I think this washing of of his feet by Jesus, coupled with the failure of all the disciples. I think these 24 hours that he experienced stuck with him so much so that you can actually hear it coming out in his writings. We know from church tradition that near the end of his life, John had lost the ability to walk into church on his own, so he had to be carried. Now, he was an apostle, so people held him in high regard. They listened to what he said. So how would he use these last audiences, even as he's being walked into church by people serving him in that way, he would repeat over and over, love each other, love each other. It's enough if you would just love each other. I don't know know about you, brothers and sisters, but that sounds like someone that has seen the pattern of our Lord Jesus, his humble, loving service to us, and has been forever marked by it, to pour out his life even to the very end calling us to love each other as Christ loved us. May that be true of College Park, Castleton, as long as the Lord would have us together. Let's pray.